Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chica Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening. We continue our reflections into the richness of the gospel text this fourth Sunday of Lent, which, as many of you know out there, is also Latere Sunday. Uh, Latere is the Latin word for rejoice, huh? Echoing Isaiah chapter 66, verse 10. Rejoice, O Jerusalem. So we say, <laughs> rejoice, O new Jerusalem. Um, so this fourth Sunday of Lent, then, is very much a, a Sunday where we are made to reflect into joy. Now, why do this in the middle of Lent? Well, what did we talk about a little bit last week in our reflections into the Transfiguration? We must remember that we must pass through suffering if we're going to attain true joy. So this is what the Church wants us thinking about. And of course, she does this this fourth Sunday of Lent with the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the gospel for the fourth Sunday of Lent is one of arguably the most celebrated pages of Luke's gospel. Everything in this parable is surprising. Men had never portrayed God in this way. This parable has probably touched more hearts than all the sermons that have been preached put together, right? It has incredible power to act on the mind. It has incredible power to act on the heart. It has incredible power to act on the imagination and memory. In other words, it has incredible power, my dear friends, to act on the faculties of the soul. It is able to touch the most diverse chords of repentance, shame, and even nostalgia. Okay, this is what the parable of the prodigal son is about. And before we get into a commentary on this great um, parable, let us first read this parable, which has us going back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And now it's interesting. It doesn't start with verses 11 to 32, those verses which speak to the parable of the prodigal son, but it opens up first with verses 1 to 3, which we are going to speak also about, huh? Okay, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 3 and 11 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them? So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. And he divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in loose living. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country, and he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and make merry. For this my my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Behold, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf? And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make Mary and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. If you are a faithful listener, you know well that I have spent a great number of programs looking at different aspects of this text, and certainly we will re-engage some of those aspects, but I do want to first focus in on these first few verses. What did we read in verses 1 and 2? All the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him to listen to him. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Following this lead, let us reflect upon and look at our Lord's attitude towards sinners, huh? The welcome that Jesus reserves for sinners in the gospel is well known, as is the opposition that this procures him on the part of the defenders of the law, who accuse him of of being what? What do we read in Luke chapter 7, verse 34? A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus declares in one of his better historically attested sayings, I have not come to call the just, but sinners. Feeling welcomed and not judged by him, of course, what happens? (laughs) Sinners listen to him gladly. But who were the sinners? What category of persons was designated by this term? Was someone trying to completely justify our Lord's adversaries, the Pharisees, has argued that by this term is understood the deliberate and impenitent transgressors of the law. In other words, the criminals, those who are outside the law, huh? If this were so, then Jesus' adversaries would have been entirely right to be scandalized and see him as an irresponsible and socially dangerous person. As Father Cantalamesa highlights, it would be as if a priest today 
were to regularly frequent members of the mafia and criminals and accept their invitations to dinner with the pretext of speaking to them of God. Huh? In reality, of course, this is not how things are. You see, my friends, the Pharisees had their vision of the law and of what conformed to it or what was contrary to it. And they considered reprobate all those who did not follow their rigid interpretation of the law. In their view, anyone who did not follow their traditions or dictates was what? A sinner, huh? Following the same logic, if you were to go into history, we read of the Essenes of Qumran and how they considered the Pharisees themselves to be unjust and violators of the law. The same thing happens today, does it not? Certain groups consider all those who do not think exactly as they do to be heretics. Jesus does not deny the existence of sin and sinners. This is obvious from the fact that he calls them sick. Sick, right? And on this point, he is more rigorous than even his adversaries. If they condemn actual adultery, what does Jesus do? He condemns adultery already at the stage of desire, right? If the law says not to kill, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that we must not even hate or insult our brother. You see what he does? He goes deeper. And paradoxically, he has us thinking differently. To the sinners who draw near to him, he says, go and sin no more. He does not say, go and live as you were living before. You know, the first sin that Jesus forgives is sexual sin, right? The first sin that Jesus forgives is the sin of the woman caught in adultery. And he does not say, go and live as you were living before. He says, go and sin no more. Because, my dear friends, when you have an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ, it changes you. It changes you to the core. It brings out the person who you were called to be in light of the encounter you've had with God. My dear friends, the flesh dwelt among us for the sake of the encounter that we all might hear post-encounter, go and sin no more. This is repentance. Just not to be sorry for our sin, contrite, but also resolve to change. In light of the encounter with the grace of Jesus Christ, I now want to live like Jesus Christ. Is this not what it means to be Christian? Christ-like? Huh? He came for the sake of the encounter. Okay, what Jesus condemns is the Pharisees relegating to themselves true justice, huh? and they're denying to others the possibility of conversion. This is the real tragedy, is it not? The idea that we can deny conversion? The way that Luke introduces the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is significant. What do we read in Luke chapter 18, verse 9? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You see how that was set up? Jesus was more severe with those who condemned sinners with disdain than he was with sinners themselves. And oh, by the way, footnote to a reflection this evening, I think Pope Francis is uh, echoing a little bit of this. So, now, the novel, an unheard of thing in the relationship between Jesus and sinners, is not his goodness 
This can be explained in a human way. There is in his attitude something that cannot be humanly explained. That is, it cannot be explained so long as Jesus is taken to be a man like other men. What is novel and unheard of is our Lord's what? Forgiveness of sins. What does Jesus say to the paralytic? My son, your sins are forgiven you. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus' horrified adversaries cry out, right? And what was our Lord's reply? So that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, get up. He said to the paralytic, pick up your mat and go home. No one could verify whether the sins of that man were forgiven, but everyone could see that he got up and walked, right? The visible miracle attested to the invisible miracle. That's the whole point behind that parable, right? Behind that narrative, behind that encounter. Even the investigation of our Lord's relationship with sinners contributes to an answer to the question, who is Jesus? I mean, a man like other men, a prophet or something different still, who was he? During his earthly life, Jesus never explicitly affirmed himself to be God, right? He always deferred to the Son of Man. But he did attribute to himself powers that are exclusive to God. Now, in light of this, let us return to our gospel for this Sunday and the parable of the prodigal son. And let us situate this within the context of the whole chapter, because the whole chapter is just not about the parable of the prodigal son, but of course, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And there is a common element that unites the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. What do the shepherd who finds the lost sheep and the woman who finds her coin say? Rejoice with me. Rejoice. La terre, huh? And what does Jesus say at the end of each parable? There will be more joy in heaven for a converted sinner than for 99 just people who do not need to convert. You see, my friends, the leitmotif of the three parables is joy, the joy of God. The phrase, there is joy before the angels of God, is an entirely Jewish way to speak of joy in God. In our parable, joy overflows and becomes a feast, huh? The father is overcome with joy, and what happens? He orders the best robe for his son, a ring with the family seal, which was very important, the killing of the fatted calf, and says to all, you heard the verses, you heard the words, let us eat and make merry for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Beautiful. Father Cantor de Mesa, in his reflection, turns to Dostoevsky, the popular uh, Russian author, uh, Russian writer. Um, if you've never read Dostoevsky, read him. Um, so many rich, palpable Christian images. In one of his novels, Dostoevsky describes a scene that has the air of having been witnessed in reality. A woman holds a baby a few weeks old in her arms, and for the first time, according to her, he smiles at her. All contrite, she makes the sign of the cross on his forehead, and to those who ask her the reason for this, she says, just as a mother is happy when she sees the first smile of her child, God too rejoices 
every time a sinner gets on his knees and addresses a heartfelt prayer to him. Beautiful. That was from his classic work, The Idiot, right? The Idiot. That's the name of his book, The Idiot. And I tell you, you've heard me quote that read before. It is a rich, rich read. Okay. And let me say something to that encounter as it relates between parent and newborn, especially when that newborn smiles for the first time. If you have never experienced that, for all of you listeners out there who is not a father or mother, let me tell you, there is something in that encounter that brings a joy that words cannot explain. And it is right that Dostoevsky speaks to this here, because if that is true, how much more does God rejoice when we go on bended knee and repent of our sins? Mm. Amen. So, what takes away our joy? Well, let us consider the eldest son in this narrative, who gives us a portrait of envy and entitlement. He puts expectation at the heart of what he does, which ultimately leads to disappointment and resentment. You've heard me speak to this before. Expectation leads to disappointment, and disappointment breeds resentment. Ask yourself the question, if you resent someone, does it have something to do with disappointment? And does that disappointment have something to do with expectation? Did the prodigal son expect anything from his father in his return? No. He was deeply contrite. He was deeply moved by how he failed his father. And all he desired was to be in his father's presence as a servant. He didn't expect anything. The prodigal son merited nothing. Nothing. Grace, my dear friends, is unmerited goodness from God. And I think we have to be reminded of this from time to time. How do we expect? And how does it impact our relationships? Here, we ought to speak to gratitude. Huh? <laughs> Are we grateful for what God has done in our lives? So in the case of the elder son, his self-centeredness, as the story reveals, results in the inability to see his brother as a brother. Did you not catch that? Huh? This son of yours. He no longer speaks to him as a brother, but this son of yours. You know, I joke around with my wife when um, one of our children does something wrong. <laughs> that son of yours, I say playfully. There's nothing playful about this here in, the, in this parable. No. The elder son resents his brother. He's a man without gratitude. And consequently, he, he's a man without the disposition to forgive. The eldest son stands as the figure who expects, representing that all too popular sentiment, I deserve. We live in a culture of entitlements, and it eats away at our soul. It eats away at our soul. Deeply embedded within the fabric of our very nature is this innate need to work. Why? Because it is liberating. It is life-giving. And it is also a movement towards gratitude. If entitlements lead to slothfulness, laziness, and sin, work leads to freedom and gratitude. Let us not live in that sentiment of, I deserve, but live in God's mercy. Live in God's mercy.
It's a fascinating thing that the younger son cannot believe at first that his father is taking him back again. He is too inclined to despise himself for his failure in life. The elder son cannot accept the fact that to the father, the lost son's coming back home again is more important than any matters of inheritance. He was dead and is alive. Both of them have to learn to understand that God intends them to be happy and alive. All of us have to understand that it gives God the greatest joy if we, his children, find our way home to him and rejoice in him. And the farther away from which we are coming back, the greater his joy. Brothers and sisters, in our sin, we are at our worst. But when we take that sin and we repent of that sin and we go to the sacrament of confession, what we get is God's best, his grace, his mercy. And at once he reminds us that we are better than our worst because if sin is our worst and God's grace is what is best, then by living in his grace, we are better than our worst. What does the word grace mean? Oh, by the way, it comes from the Greek root charis, which can also mean joy, joy, rejoice. Grace and joy belong together, do they not? Benedict XVI once said that in light of grace and joy belonging together, and in that great angelic salutation, rejoice, O highly favored one, or hail full of grace from the angel Gabriel to Mary, Joy is the first proclamation of the New Testament. If grace is the essence of God, his very life-giving love, what does it do? It brings joy. Why? Because if it is life-giving, then it is bursting forth. It is something that man cannot contain. So by living in God's grace is to live in his joy. And to live in his joy is to burst forth with enthusiasm. What does the word enthusiasm mean? Entheos, to bear God within. If grace and joy belong together, then so does enthusiasm. They are a kind of uh, trinity, if you will, because they all belong together. And this is what we are made to see this Sunday, Latere Sunday, this fourth Sunday of Lent. And yes, as I noted off the top, it must pass through the cross. It must pass through the suffering of Christ. As long as we are vested with the flesh, we will suffer. And I'm just not talking about physical suffering. I'm also talking about emotional suffering, psychological suffering, suffering that comes from relationships. But what does Jesus say? Let me help you carry that cross. This is the essence of compassion. You know, did not the Father run to the Son in compassion? What does the word compassion mean? Compassio, to suffer with? To suffer with. I mean, why do we spend so much time reflecting into the meaning of words? Because words have origin and words have meaning. And if we're going to better understand just not scripture, but our dialogues that we have with one another, we have to better understand the words we use. What does mercy mean? From the Latin, misericordiae, sorrowful at heart to share misery. Christ came to us so as to share in our misery. And he doesn't give us an antidote to our pain, to our suffering. 
He shows us how to endure suffering by allowing him to help us carry our cross. So important. He gave our crosses redemptive power. And this is why we conform ourselves to him. Huh? Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. Let us go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this time that we have together, that you might continue to enrich us with your word, the living word of God, sacred scripture, and with the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we might continue to gain access into the inner life of God. Amen. And let us turn to Our Lady, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. Heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.